We're going to be starting a new sermon series this morning through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's entitled Roadmap for Raw Christians, and the idea is that Paul is giving instructions to the church in Corinth, and they are starting in a, in a very raw position. Not only are they new believers, so they are spiritually immature, but they're also coming out of a culture that is immersed in pagan idolatry and sexual immorality, and so they're unrefined morally. They're, they're very raw. And so Paul's saying, look, here's, here's where you are, point A. I'm going to take you to point B. I'm going to bring you instruction and teaching, apostolic teaching, the words of Christ to get you from where you are right now to a mature follower of Jesus Christ. So we, we've called it a roadmap for raw Christians. And we're going to be starting at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to be taking a little bit slower pace than we have been through, through other books of the Bible. We usually take maybe about a chapter at a time. Uh, that's, that was our pace through the book of Job. And instead, we're going to slow it down a little bit. Uh, this morning, we're going to be taking the first three verses. So 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. That's on page 952 of the ESV Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together first. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we, we come expectantly. We come ready to listen in faith. We come asking that you would teach us what we need to know from your word. And Father, we want to, to take what you have revealed to us and apply it in our lives. Help us to live more faithfully. So, Father, we ask that, that your blessing would accompany the, the proclamation of this word this morning. And, uh, Father, we ask that we would listen in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was springtime, and the grass started to, to grow again. And Harvey decided that he was going to contract with a mowing service to, to mow his lawn this particular summer, because in the past year he was cutting it close, there was so much going on in his life that sometimes he couldn't get to it, and it would, it would become a week and a half, two weeks, and the neighbors would make some comments, and, and so he just decided to, to forget it. He had too much going on, and he was going to let a service take care of that for him this year. So he had it narrowed down to three that had been recommended by friends and co-workers, so he called all three of them. The first one was uh, out of range. He was too far away. He was out of their service range. The other two, one came in very high estimate. The other one came comparatively very low estimate. And so before he made his decision, he thought, well, I'm just going to spot check their customer service. So he, he called the high estimate first, and he, he went through the phone tree, and he pushed the number for, for existing customer. So he wanted to see how well they responded after he signed on with them. And they, they answered right away. And they were very friendly. And he said, I want to know, look, I'm, I've got it narrowed down between you and one other competitor, but yours is really high. You've given me a really high estimate. Why is that? And they said, yeah, we get that question all the time. They said, it's because we don't have any hidden fees. We, we, we let you know everything up front. It's called our upfront guarantee. If you go to the competitor, you're going to see that they charge extra for uh, edging and trimming. And of course, almost everybody wants edging and trimming. That's included in our price. You're going to see that if, 
if they have to pick up anything in the yard, any kind of debris or limbs, then, then that's an extra charge. We, we don't charge you extra for that. That's just part of our service. And they, they went on to name several, several other things. And then at the end, the, the, the tech challenged him. He's, they said, go ahead and call them and ask about those hidden fees. You're going to find that after we're done comparing and you, you figure all that in, we're very competitive, if not even, even lower than they are. And so Harvey called the other place, and she was right. Um, she was right. I, I think we appreciate it when people are up front with us, don't we? we? With no games, no deception, just everything we need to know up front, right at the beginning. The Apostle Paul believed in being up front. And at the very beginning of his letter, the first letter to Corinthians, he, he squares off on them and he, he speaks to them directly and he is up front. He's up front about who he is and he's up front about who they are. And he is essentially saying this. He's saying, I'm going to be writing with the full authority of my apostolic office. And I want you, Corinthians, to respond as the church of Jesus Christ should respond. I want you to respond to these words as if they are the words of Christ, because they are. I want you to respond in full obedience, joyfully, completely. And so I'm letting you know up front what this relationship looks like. I am an apostle, and you are the church. That's what Paul's telling him in these first few verses. Now, it was vitally important for Paul to be up front with the church in Corinth for, for three reasons at least. Number one, because of the foundational nature of Paul's work. Number two, because of the opposition to Paul's work. And number three is a reason we'll get to before we close out the message this morning. Let's look at just these three verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 3 contain the letter's greeting. The letter's greeting. It identifies the sender of the letter. It identifies the recipients of the letter. So the sender is Paul, and the receivers of the letter are those who belong to the church of God in Corinth. And Paul begins by identifying himself as an apostle. Now, why is that significant? Why does that make a difference? Why didn't Paul just identify himself by saying, Paul your brother in Christ, or Paul, your partner in the gospel. It's because all those things are, those things are true. Paul is a brother to them in Christ, and Paul is a partner with them in the gospel. That's not all he is. Paul is more than that. He is an apostle. So I want us to nail down a definition of this right away. I'm going to give it to you twice and then some scripture references. An apostle is a person who is selected and directly commissioned by the resurrected Jesus Christ to complete the foundational work of the church with full representational authority from Jesus and the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders. There it is again. 
an apostle, a person who is selected and directly commissioned by the resurrected Jesus Christ to complete the foundational work of the church with full representational authority from Jesus and the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders. Now here's some scripture references for each component of that definition. Ephesians 4.11, Acts 9.15, Ephesians 2.19-20, 1 Corinthians 14.37, and Acts 5.12. So we need to understand what an apostle is as compared to just a general disciple. Remember, disciples are followers of Jesus Christ, and apostles are as defined as I just read a moment ago. So if we want to think of concentric circles, the, the big circle is disciples, and then the much, much smaller circle is apostles. All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. So it's, it's important to, to make sure we make those distinctions. The role of apostles in the early church is to bridge the gap between the incarnate ministry of Jesus Christ and the established church as it has been after the apostles and continues on to today. So the, the apostles were tasked by Jesus to take the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, as revealed to them during his incarnate ministry and as revealed to them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and to write them down, to codify them into scripture, these different letters that we have today, and to, to be that voice that spoke into that period between incarnate ministry of Jesus and the, the, the church that contained that had in possession of the scriptures. So that in-between period, we've got the apostles. They were foundational members and establishers of the church. So Paul holds this office and authority of an apostle. Now he's going to correct, he's going to rebuke, he's going to instruct these believers with direct authority from Jesus. In other words, the letter does not contain suggestions. The letter does not contain helpful advice. It contains words from the Apostle Paul and therefore should be received and obeyed as if they are coming directly from Jesus Christ. He has representational authority. The letter is written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means it, it, they still contain words to us from Christ today. Now, there are some modern scholars, modern commentators that, that don't like the idea of Paul and his authority and so they try to soften the, this opening line. In fact, there are some that would view anyone in church leadership as being someone who is uh, the enemy and uh, an oppressor and uh, someone who's interested in, in subjugating others and maintaining their own power and that's just kind of how they view the church. But they don't view Paul that way, and so they want to distance Paul from, from that. And so they say, oh, no, 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 uh, Paul's different. Paul um, is, is a, a servant among equals. And when he uses this word apostle, really what he's saying is he's linking himself to, to Jesus and the resurrection. And that's all he's doing. So they would say, no, uh, Paul's not asserting his authority. He's not trying to pull rank on them. Or, or portray himself as one who is over them. That is exactly what he is doing. That is exactly what Paul is doing in this opening line. He is pulling rank on them. He is appealing to his apostolic office. He is pointing out his authority over the church. He's not, he is trying to 
uh, Paul rank, and he does expect them to respect and obey everything he says as an apostle. So I would go as far as to say it is a misinterpretation to make this out to be something other than that. This is exactly what Paul's doing. 1 Corinthians 9.1. This isn't the only place. When we get later in chapter 9, he starts off by saying, am I not an apostle? What's he doing there? He's referring to his apostolic office and authority. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? What's he doing there? He's saying, I have. You haven't. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? That Paul is not the Corinthian church's workmanship. The Corinthian church is Paul's workmanship in the Lord. So this isn't the only time Paul appeals to his authority. Later on in 1 Corinthians 14, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those words should be received as the words of Christ. So, he's not puffed up with arrogance. He's, he's not trying to, um, he doesn't view his apostleship as something to be lorded over others. He's, he's not uh, looking for personal gain. In other words, Paul's not some sort of uh, narcissistic control freak. I mean, I think we need to put that out there. Obviously not. But he is writing authoritatively. And he is not writing as their equal. He is over them. Just as Christ is over Paul, Paul is saying, I'm over you in the church in terms of authority, in terms of teaching. So he, as he writes this letter, he's literally going to be laying down the law, New Testament commands for the church. So it's important that his authority be clearly posted at the front entrance of this letter. So all who walk by it, all who enter this letter and read it can read, okay, Paul is saying he is an apostle and he's writing with the authority of Christ. As he does in many of his letters, 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And many other of Paul's New Testament letters start in the very same way, by appealing to his apostolic authority. It says, by the will of God. Paul did not wake up one morning and think, you know, I think I'll become an apostle. No, it, this was not his choice or his decision. He was directly commissioned by Jesus Christ. He was called by God. It was God's will that Paul's an apostle, and it's God's will that he's writing to the church authoritatively. Paul's going to be giving these raw Christians a roadmap for what it looks like to be an obedient church. And so he appeals to his authority. And then it says that our brother Sosthenes, this could be the Sosthenes mentioned in Acts 18. We've got a reference to a man named Sosthenes in Corinth, but we don't know for sure. And even if it was, it really doesn't add a whole lot to you know, unraveling the mysterious uh, identity of this man. We just don't know with much clarity who he was. We do know he was a trusted brother of Paul, and he was known to the Corinthian church. That's who Sosthenes is. So that's who the letter is from. It's from the Apostle Paul. Now we want to turn to who the letter is addressed to. And it says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So in order for Paul to address all the believers in the city of Corinth, he writes to the church. He does not write to individual Christians or groups of Christians. He simply addresses the church, those who have believed in Christ, 
have become a part of the body of Christ, the church. This pattern is laid down for us in Scripture. It's very clear. It is repent and believe, and then join yourself to the body of Christ, the church, a local assembly of believers. Uh, We can appreciate this teaching from, from New Testament scholar Guy Waters. He says this, The word is preached, people profess faith, and they gather locally into congregations or assemblies ruled by Christ through a government of his appointment. There is no occasion in the Acts of the Apostles when an individual Christian lives a solitary existence, isolated from other believers. Christians, by definition, join themselves to the body of believers. Very true. He's saying, this is saying there are no Lone Ranger Christians that are just roaming around, unattached to the body of Christ. Now last week we looked at the Great Commission as we, as we looked at the uncontained Jesus, they tried to contain his body and his authority. They were unsuccessful. He is uncontainable. And we looked at the Great Commission. And the Great Commission was Jesus' instructions to his followers where he gave the mission of the church to his followers, to, to the church. And the mission of the church was to go and make disciples of all nations. And how were they to do that? One of the things that Jesus mentioned was make disciples by baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptizing them into what? The church. Baptizing them into the visible church. When we are baptized, we're baptized into the body of Christ. There's other New Testament evidence uh, of God's expectation that his people belong to his church. For example, church discipline. When we look at uh, New Testament teaching on church discipline. Now Paul's going to hit that in chapter 5. He's going to talk about church discipline. Um, That cannot take place outside the church. When we go to Matthew 18, Matthew 18, the words of Jesus, he walks us through the the outline, the process, the disciplinary process. That also cannot take place outside the church. The expectation of Paul, the expectation of Jesus, is that church discipline happens in the church, and he expects all of his followers to be members of a local congregation. Elders are God's appointed officers over the church in charge with spiritual oversight. How is, a, how is an elder supposed to provide spiritual oversight for someone if they don't belong to a church? The answer is they can't. They can't. It's not possible. Again, the implicit teaching of scripture is that church membership is not optional. And tragically, this is one of the reasons why some people do not join a church. Some people recognize this. They read it and they're okay. I don't want to be under the authority of an elder board. I I don't want to be held accountable uh, for my walk with Jesus. And I certainly don't want anybody coming at me with with, uh, intent of church discipline. So they just do not join a church. Uh, The Lord's Supper is only administered in the church during public worship. Acts 27, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. What does that teach us? It teaches us that from the beginning... Communion, the Lord's Supper, was observed when believers gathered as a local assembly for worship. It took place in a worship service as the church. Uh, later on in 1 Corinthians 11, 18-24, in the first place when you come together as a church, remember 1 Corinthians 11 is where Paul gives those detailed instructions of the Lord's Supper. He said, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now he says that because what they're doing as they gather, he's correcting them in, in chapter 11. But, but the, the principle is there. He's saying when you come together as a church, that's when you have the Lord's Supper. It takes place as the church. 
In fact, Paul writes that the Lord's Supper, among other things, signifies the unity of the body of believers. 1 Corinthians 10.16 The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The body of Christ is the church. Without church membership, a believer is not a part of the body of believers as expressed in a local congregation. They're denying part of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. They're saying that they, they don't think that being a part of that, the, that local assembly is important. In fact, they can't legitimately confess the Apostles' Creed. Remember, it says, I believe in the, in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic in that context means universal. I, I believe in the body of, of Christ, in the church. Ephesians 4 tells us that the only way to grow up in every way into him who is the head is to be a part of his body, the church. Um, That's the only way it can be possible for the body to work together, to build itself up. In other words, you cannot be built up by the body if you're not part of the body. That makes sense. It's pretty straightforward. So the Bible teaches us that if you're if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are to join a local assembly of believers and become a member of Christ's body, the church. So this is who the letter is addressed to. It is the church in Corinth, the local body of believers. Now Paul gives a further description of the body. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means to be made holy or to set apart for holy use. All believers... New believers, brand new believers, mature, older believers alike, they're all sanctified, what we call definitively or positionally in Christ. So when Christ calls someone and and saves them, they are sanctified. It's called definitively or positionally. In other words, it's a one-time event. It's, It's an instantaneous. You are sanctified. You are in Christ. You have called, you've been called out of the world into his into the kingdom of God, and you are set apart for good works, for service in Christ's church. So all believers are sanctified in that sense. And then the rest of the li- our lives as believers were sanctified, it's called progressively. That's the ongoing work. The first one is immediate, the second one takes a lifetime. And we grow in Christ and we more and more die to sin and more and more live for Jesus Christ. So they're sanctified. They're also called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the church of Corinth is not alone. They're not the only believers. They're part of the the universal church. Again, when we talk about the Apostles' Creed, when it says the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic means universal in that context. So we're talking about the fact that there are local bodies of believers all over the world. At any given time, of course, like this morning, right now, for instance, there, there are churches that are meeting all over the world and on every continent. And they're reminded of this. So how does verse 2 help set the stage for the rest of the letter? It, it, it really is Paul giving them a, a, a roadmap, and it starts right here, He reminds them, you are in Christ. You you are called out of the world. 
I want you to be sure that you understand your identity in Christ. You're, you're not part of the world anymore. You're, you're not to, to go back and, and to conform and, and to, to blend in with people who are not set apart and who are unbelievers. You're the church. You're different. You, brothers and sisters, are called to walk in holiness. And, he's saying in this, these verses, I'm going to hold you to the same level of accountability that I hold every other body of Christ to. You're not the only local body believers. There's a body of believers in Corinth. There's a body of believers in Antioch. There's a body of believers in Ephesus. There's a body of believers in Frankfurt. There's a body of believers in Mokina. There's a body of believers in New Lenox. They're all over the place. And so I'm calling you the same standard that all people are called to in terms of discipleship. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a greeting given to the church, and it's a greeting that can only be given to the church. Grace and peace is extended through faith in Christ. The, the only ones that, that can lay claim to this are believers. Believers can lay claim to the grace of God experienced in the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Only believers. Believers are the only ones that can lay claim to this promise of of having the peace of God extended to them. They've been reconciled to the Father through the Son, therefore they are at peace spiritually with God. So it's a, it's a Christian greeting for the church. Being up front. Paul, Paul is being up front at the very beginning of this letter, and we said there were three primary reasons. Number one, because of the foundational nature of Paul's work. The foundational nature being upfront about identifying who he was and his office and identifying who they were and the expectations was important because of the nature of Paul's ministry. Remember, Paul was setting down apostolic teaching, doctrine that would govern how the church would be organized, functioned, and run, and how they would live out their faith as believers from this point on until Christ returns. So this, this was foundational teaching. And one thing we know about foundational teaching is you want to get that right. You want to get the foundational teaching right. Ephesians 2, 16 through 20 says this, He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, talking about the church. So making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the, cor the cornerstone. This verse speaks to that foundational nature of Paul's work. Of course, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone that's set in the building, and it is make sure, we make sure it's level and plumb and square and exactly right within a fraction, fraction of an inch, because wherever it is now, and you run the rest of the foundation stones off of that, well, 80, 90, 110 feet from there, if you're off by this much, you're going to be off by a lot by the time you extend it out that far. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's saying the apostles, what Paul's doing here is that first row, that foundational row of, of brickwork, of blockwork, everything else is built upon that. The church today, we, we stand on top of that foundation, Jesus Christ and the apostolic work. And we are to remain on it. 2 John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
abide means remain in. So everyone who, who remains building, who remains set on that foundation, they're, they're in Christ. They have God. They have both the Father and the Son. If we leave that foundation, uh, the NIV, I think, says run ahead. If, if, we, if we leave behind the foundational teaching scripture, then we've, we've lost sight of, of who we are as a church. You're departing from Jesus' teaching. And then Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. Our, our doctrine, our, our standards, everything is built on this foundational work. So it was vitally important that Paul would be upfront about his authority and about the church and who they were and their proper response to what he was going to write to them. So number one, because of the foundational nature. Number two, because of the opposition to Paul's work. Now a year or two later, when Paul would write 2 Corinthians, we have confirmation that there were false teachers that, that had come in. They were, they were proclaiming a different gospel, Paul says, and, and another Jesus, he says in 2 Corinthians. Here he is calling them out, 2 Corinthians 11.13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So disguising, which means to change your outward appearance. So these, these false teachers, these false apostles, were presenting themselves as teachers of Christ. They were, they were putting themselves on equal footing as Paul. Say, we're apostles too. We're, we're going to bring you foundational teaching too. In, in the vacuum left by Paul, Paul, Paul was in, in Corinth for a while, but then he left. And in that vacuum, these, these deceitful, they're called servants of Satan, deceitful, false apostles kind of shouldered their way in and, and, and with some persuasive speaking and with um, an air of authority and maybe even a dash of intimidation, they, they made their way into the church. And they were leading people astray. Intentionally fraudulent. They were being dishonest. They were playing a game with the believers in Corinth. They weren't, they weren't up front. They were disguising themselves. And they took advantage of people for their own personal gain. Now the worst part about it was their false teaching. Uh, Paul writes that they were proclaiming another Jesus and a different gospel. So they were leading people away from Jesus Christ. And they were offering a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's a gospel that does not save. Now there is still opposition to Paul's work today. Uh, I do a lot of listening to sermons. Uh, in fact, I do a lot of spot-checking of, of sermons, both uh, nationally, over the internet, and, and some locally. Sometimes people uh, give me sermons, and they say, hey, I really want you to give me your impression of what this is all about. So that's what I'm listening to when I'm driving around 99% of the time. I've got a sermon on, and so I'm listening to a lot of sermons. And I can tell you this, there are still people today in 2022 that are acting as false teachers, and they're leading people away from Jesus Christ. And the false teaching 
um, isn't about Jew and Gentile, and it's not really about um, legalism so much. Those aren't the biggies. I would say the two areas that the vast majority of false teaching fall under are these. Number one, a gospel that accepts sin. That's where, we, that's where I see a lot of the false teaching, a gospel that accepts sin, trying to teach believers that following Christ and engaging in ongoing unrepentant sin are compatible. And that you're, you're good to go. There, there's no problem with that. Um, this ranges from everything from uh, cohabitation before marriage, homosexual sin, or, or distorting or erasing those, those gender distinctions, um, rationalizing abortion. Um, it, it's, it's essentially saying, look, you have unrestricted freedom and autonomy as a believer. Whatever you do, you're in Christ. You're forgiven. There's grace for that. So don't worry about how you're living. Indeed, the only recognized sin is the sin of intolerance. Not, not accepting, not tolerating anything uh, in terms of sinful behavior that comes in the church. So there are churches that preach this gospel. They, gospel, <laughs> they label themselves as welcoming and affirming. And they would label faithful churches as hateful and unloving. That's, that's one of the areas that we see false teaching today. It's, it's a repentance-less gospel, which is really no the gospel at all. The other area that is making incredibly fast inroads into the church is trying to teach that the following of Christ means viewing everything through the lens of oppression. So this is a gospel that divides. Uh, critical race theory, woke ideology, they've shouldered their way into the church with a dash of intimidation. And in many places, they're effectively dividing the church by taking her eyes off of the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ and putting their eyes on viewing the world and the church and everything else only and exclusively through the lens of racism. This is just the, the spirit of the age right now. The church is no longer the church. We're going to chop it up into these little sub-churches, and so they use language like the white church or the black church, or I mean, you name it. That is completely antithetical to the gospel. At several places in the New Testament, Paul emphasizes unity and oneness. So it's a divisive, corrosive, and destructive Christless gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So we need to understand there's always going to be false teachers pushing and peddling a false gospel. This is what it happens to be today in 2022, but it, it changes. You know, it was different 100 years ago. If the Lord tarries, it, it may very well be different 100 years from now. That's why the church must continue to be upfront about the authority of the teaching of Scripture and upfront about our obligation as a church not to depart from Scripture and to remain faithful. Finally, there's one more reason it's vitally important for Paul to be upfront with the church and also with us today. And here it is. It's because Paul knew that Jesus was their only hope. As Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he knew that without Christ, without steadfast faith in Jesus Christ, it, it wasn't going to work. They weren't going to make it. Uh, first, some, some background to help explain this and, and, and to prove why this is a point. I want to give some background. Uh, Corinth itself, uh, in I was about to say ancient Near East, we've been in the Old Testament too long. In the first century, 
In the first century, Corinth was situated on a, on a very narrow land bridge, and, and it, it had uh, two ports on each side of this, this land, uh, narrow land bridge. One opened up to, to a gulf that opened up to the Aegean Sea, the other one opened up to a gulf to the Ionian Sea, and all of the, the Italy-Asia trade went through this highway. It was a very busy area. And so instead of making the long and dangerous journey all the way down through the bottom of Greece and all the way back up again, they would just transport their goods over this land bridge. It's about four miles long. So they would load everything up. Now today, if you look on Google Maps, you're gonna, if you go to this spot, you're going to see a canal has been built. There is a waterway. It's just straight as narrow. It just slices right through the land. That wasn't there back then. That was completed in 1893. But back then, they would load everything off their ships and they would put it on carts and, and have it pulled by animals. Sometimes they would take the ships themselves and put them on logs and just roll them across this, this four-mile stretch. It's easier than going all the way around. It's safer. Corinth was situated right in the middle of that. And so even though it wasn't on the ocean front itself, it's been called the master of both harbors. And all the trade and all the commerce went through this. Corinth has been called a in, this, in the first century a freewheeling boom town full of upwardly mobile people. Okay, so there was a lot of money going through Corinth and a lot of people wanted to get their hands on it. So there was this deeply rooted sense of materialism and idolatry of wealth. That was part of the culture. There were also many pagan temples and gods and goddesses in Corinth. Some have cited as many, as many as 26 different sacred places around the city of Corinth. In Corinth's past, at one of these temples, there's been estimated to be around 1,000 um, male and female prostitutes serving this one temple alone. And there were 26 of them. There was a buffet of religious, pagan religious practices and, and the sexual activity associated with those pagan practices was considered normal. It, it was just part of the culture. It was, it was as accepted as filling your car up with gas at the gas station or going to the grocery store to buy milk. It was just, it was that part uh, of the, it was so much a part of the society that it was just, it wasn't even, nobody raised an eyebrow. It was just, it was accepted. That was part of the culture. All gods were accepted. We have an ancient papyrus fragment from Corinth that states, I pray to all gods. An inscription that states, we magnify every god. That people were called haters, haters of humankind, if they didn't accept this, this plurality of gods and goddesses. And one of the most important religious practices in Paul's day was the imperial cult. This was emperor worship. The, the, the emperor or the power in the emperor and the office of emperor was viewed as divine and it was worshipped. This was, again, part of the culture. One scholar has noted, quote, religious ceremony and political authority were inseparable. It was thought that the spirituality of the God that resided in the Roman emperor was divine and ought to be worshipped. To do so, maintain and preserve the state and the social order and prosperity of Rome. So you can see where they were pressured to go along with this. If you don't participate in this imperial cult worship, you're hurting the economy. You're the problem. So there was a lot of pressure to go along with that. Citizens were expected to perform sacrifices. They were, they were expected to participate in these festivals and the, these feasts. In fact, later on, one Roman official would make emperor worship the test to see whether or not someone was a Christian. 
And, and here was the test. He would say, look, if you want to find out who the Christians are, ask them to offer incense to the statue of a living emperor and to deny Jesus. They won't do that. But everyone else will. Everyone else will do it. The only people who won't do that are Christians. A lot of pressure. With all this wealth and idolatry and sexual immorality that and the state worshiping happening, the city of Corinth has been compared to a modern day a combination of Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and New York all wrapped up into one. And that really says a lot about our current culture as well, doesn't it? If we have to compare Corinth to, to some of our cities to get a picture of its corruption. Also keep in mind, this was mostly Gentile church. In other words, there weren't a whole lot of Jewish people. They were, they were mostly Gentiles. So the Gentiles did not have that Jewish background. They didn't grow up with the, with the traditions and the teachings of, of, of the Old Testament. They didn't have that connection by blood or by heritage to, to all the, the accounts of how God has, has savingly worked through his people covenantally. They didn't have Jewish roots. They were coming out of the culture saturated in sexual immorality and idolatry of all kinds. As a result, the majority of new believers in Corinth we could call raw they were raw Christians. They were spiritually mature. They were brand new. They didn't know a whole lot about the faith. And they were morally unrefined. They, they were coming out of this, this culture that just saw all that activity as normal and, and part of what it means to be a good citizen. When they became believers, they were struggling to adapt and to learn what it meant to be people of God and, and the church of God. Even as everyone around them continued to pressure them back into that lifestyle. So it was not an easy place to be a Christian, let alone a new Christian. That is the context into which Paul is writing. And that's why that reason number three, without Jesus, they have no hope. They have no hope. There's just too much pressure. Paul is up front with these believers. He knows who he is, he knows who they are, and he knows the context. And, and he's saying, look, if this message gets diluted, if it gets cloudy, if, if this church doesn't understand that everything I'm telling them is authoritative, if they're not ready to obey everything I say, then they're going to be at risk. They're going to be at risk to be deceived by those false apostles who have shouldered their way in by the false teaching, by the different gospel that doesn't save. And if they're not swept away by the false teachers, they're just going to get sucked back into that culture. It's just so prevailing. Their family members, their, their co-workers, their friends, they're all still in that, and they're going to be returning to it. Paul knows that Jesus is their only hope, so he's up front with them. No games, no false advertising, no hidden fees. I'm an apostle, you're the church. And this is what I expect of you. It was as if he would say this, I, if you don't accept me as, apostle, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, if you don't accept these words as authoritative, if you don't remain firmly planted in your identity as follower of Jesus Christ, who live as one called out of the world, radically different from those around you, then you're not going to make it. You're going to wander off. You will, you will abandon your identity as followers of Jesus Christ, the church. And if that happens, just forget it. Sin will have its way with you. You have no hope. But, but, Paul's saying, if you accept my words for what they are, 
apostolic words, the words of Christ. And if you live into who you are, the church, followers of Jesus Christ, sanctified, called out to serve the king, then you will live. Then you'll make it. Paul's being up front, and he's holding out a message of hope. He's saying, there is hope for you, even in the midst of this dark, morally chaotic, sewage pit of a culture that you're living in. If you place your faith in Christ. We are in a culture not unlike the Corinthian culture of the first century. We Christians are, are sometimes called haters if they fail to embrace and celebrate sexual immorality like the rest of the unbelieving world. The state is increasingly seeing itself as the only power that has the right to determine social order and norms and morality. We live in a culture that calls good evil and evil good, and we face continual pressure to conform to the world. We also must recognize this letter for what it is, authoritative. We also must see ourselves as called out people, united in the body of Christ, set apart to live differently. And we also must be people who welcome this authoritative teaching as Christ's church. Our only hope, like theirs, is to remain putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not deceptive, that you never play games with us. You are, you are up front with who you are, with who we are, and what it looks like to be called out of the world and into your kingdom. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength and the ability to remain faithful, to live for you, and to continually repent of our sin and believe in our Savior Jesus. Amen.